0: I think we've spent oh, 11 or 12 messages going through this letter, and so we could wrap it up. we got about six verses left. We could wrap it up and do a deep dive into those last six verses, but I have a feeling that given the length of time we've been working on it, we may have lost the forest for the trees, and so if the Lord's with us, I'm going to try and do the whole book in less than an hour. <laughs> Maybe an hour and five. We got lunch, so don't feel like you got to go anywhere. Uh, so go back to chapter one. Because I think if you, you can hold this in context, these last verses uh, will have their proper meaning. Uh, whether Marty Hodgkins, when he was at the meeting at Friendship, you know, says that uh, reading your Bible, you know, like real estate, it's all about location, 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 right? Reading your Bible is about about context, context, context. And so sometimes we can get so far into the weeds, we forget uh, where we are. And so if the Lord will bless, we're going to try and keep this at a relatively high level. Um, But still with enough detail that hopefully as you go back and read this letter again in the future, um, you'll have more confidence and, and context on what's going on. If you remember, when it starts off, he's writing to strangers, strangers scattered throughout this large region of a modern day northern Turkey. If you look at the maps in the back of your Bible, you come up with Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So it's kind of the northern half of modern day Turkey. So you've got a huge area of populations, right? And the folks he doesn't necessarily know um, from the context of the rest of the letter, we can see that most of them were Gentiles. These are not Jews by um, birth. Um, These were believers. This is early in the, you know, the baby church. Jesus has uh, died and resurrected and ascended back up high, and now the apostles are going out and they're teaching and preaching, and so he is, the apostle Peter here is writing this letter. He's writing from the church in Babylon, and that's pretty uh, far away from Jerusalem. It's in the southern portion of Mesopotamia, um, and so he's writing this letter to them to encourage them because they are going through some hard Hard times. The reason the early church had to leave Jerusalem is because there was intense persecution by the Jews and by the Romans. You can read that in Acts, and you can see that um, pretty much everybody had to scatter from there um, except for uh, the apostles initially. And so that level of persecution is continuing, and you can see through um, Paul's journey through the book of Acts that pretty much everywhere he went, he eventually wore out his welcome. Somebody wanted to run him out of town or stone him or beat him or throw him in jail. Um, And so the gospel of Jesus Christ caused great offense and persecution for those who held to it and held it to be true. And so this letter, um, if you had to kind of sum it all up at the 10,000-foot level, this this letter is a letter of an encouragement to continue to stand fast in the midst of the persecutions that are going on. So in chapter 1... He greets them, and then he reminds them in verses 1 through 5 of some eternal truths. And if you want to encourage somebody, encourage a believer, the best thing you can do is remind them of the truths of God's words. In verse 2, it's a elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, under the obedience of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace be unto you, and peace be multiplied. He has just summed up salvation in one verse that God knew who you were, not just knew you, but loved you before the foundation of the world. He chose you. He ordained you. He determined that you were going to be with him in glory before Adam even fell. You were chosen. And he worked out salvation through an agreement with God the Father and God the Son and the covenant of grace that the Son was going to enter into this world and he was going to die, take on your sins, and you would be raised again um, spiritually. When we're born, we're conceived. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We have no spiritual life, right? None. And so by the Holy Spirit, when it comes into you and gives you new life, you suddenly can see and believe what Christ has done. That's the sanctification of the Spirit under the obedience and the blood sprinkling of Jesus Christ. So It's all there in very tight, summary form. But he's encouraging these people who are going through trials of, Remember this. This is what God has done. This is what your Lord has done. This is what he's currently doing in you. And then he goes on to remind them about this lively hope that they have, that this world is not it, that God has prepared a place for you. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and I'll have you be with me where I'm at, that was a promise he's going to come back and get us. And so that's the lively hope that picks up in verse 3 of, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy... Hath begotten us again, so he is the one who gives us new birth. It's nothing that you can do on your own. He's begotten us again um, unto a lively hope, a living hope. All right, this is not just I'm gonna go get a lot of t- t- ticket, and I sure hope I win. No, this is a living hope. This is a hope that's founded in a living person, God, Jesus Christ, that I will be with him in glory. A lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what gives this hope power the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. He is ascended up on high, sitting on the right hand of God. He is alive. That is your living hope to, what are you hoping to? To an inheritance, uncorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away. You have an inheritance. An inheritance is something that's given to you. You don't earn it, right? God the Father gave this to you, and he adopted you into his family by the work of Jesus Christ. He cleaned us up. He purified us from all of our sins and brought us into his family and has given us an inheritance. That inheritance is to be with him. In glory, in heaven for eternity, and unlike everything else in this world that fades away and gets worn out and has to be thrown out and replaced, or just fades away, right? It doesn't, right? It's the opposite of everything that you know. Anything that's good here is going to come to an end, right? There it's not. It's permanent, all right? And that is reserved for you in heaven, all right? That's the beauty of the doctrine of election is that God knows who you are individually, not just kind of just in some mass. He knows you. And as his child, his son died for you. And he has reserved a, a, a spot, an inheritance for you. All right, it's reserved for you. All right. Who are kept now, this is in our life right now, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Ready to be real at the last time. So not only has he died for you, He's prepared a place for you. He's not abandoning you now in the between, right? He's known you from before the foundation of the world. His love has never changed. He is now currently guarding you and protecting you. This is a good encouragement for a group of folks who are going through a bunch of trials where their, their neighbors who used to care for them probably now hate them. The government who used to you know, kind of ignore them now hates them. I mean, you see throughout the book of Acts of all the times that the neighbors and the business leaders and the government started to dog and hate on the Christians because the doctrines that they received were just so offensive to them. All right? It's hitting their pocketbooks. You know, the, the, There's a riot at Ephesus because the silversmiths were afraid they were going to make less money selling silver shrines to Diana because they wanted to continue to line their pocketbooks when these folks are saying, well, these gods are not really gods. right?" There's only one God. Okay, So they're going through trials. So what is Peter doing? He's reminding them of these eternal truths. If you're discouraged this morning... You're probably focused on what's going on right now. Remember these eternal truths. How long has He loved you? When will it end? It won't. What has He prepared for you? And what is He doing right now? He is keeping you by His own power. Wherein you greatly rejoice. These are all things you can rejoice in. To rejoice, that's a verb form of joy. To actively experience a cheerful mind because of this truth. You are in Him. Rejoice in the truth. Lord, right? It's not just rejoicing for rejoicing's sake. I'm not just experiencing a happy feeling all the time. I can be going through really hard times, but these truths are still true, and I can rejoice in Jesus Christ and what He's done, that He's on high, and that He's loving me and interceding on on my behalf even now. So when I go to the Father and pray, I know that Jesus is there interceding and saying, yes, this is one of mine. Yes, I paid for Him. Yes, hear His prayers, right? Maybe don't answer that. Maybe He doesn't need that but that thy Father's will would be done. All right? So these are eternal truths. So first thing Paul does is remind them of these truths of salvation and how the Lord is keeping them now so that the reminder that, yes, you can rejoice in these things, even if now for a season, year in heaviness through manifold temptations. We don't use the word manifold very much, but various, multitude, a diverse trials and tribulations and pain, not just because of, The human condition, right? We have trials and tribulations because we are frail. We have sin in our life. But these are specifically referring to trials that are coming because you're a Christian, because you're following Christ, because you're claiming, I want to follow Christ. He's called me to this. I'm going to try and live it out. And then hardships come. Okay? That's why it says in the next verse, that the trial of your faith, these are tests of your faith, being much more precious than gold which perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found in the praise and honor at the glory when? At the appearing of Jesus Christ, when he comes back. All right? There is a, a testing, a purification, a trial process that we will go through where our faith is tested. All right, There's going to be, um, throughout this letter, the idea of, of enduring heat for a better outcome at the end. All right? um, here it's giving you the illustration of gold. Gold can be heated up really well when it's an alloy. It's got other metals mixed in. You heat it up a lot and those metals will separate and you can kind of scrape off the scummy part and get the pure gold. That's one illustration. Another, uh, my boys like watching Forge in Fire, right? Where they make these little knives, okay? It's fun to see. One of the things they have to do with that steel is what they have to do. They heat it up, right? In general, looking at the boys who I know watch the show, right? They heat it up and then they bang it out and when it's in the right shape, it's quenched and it's hardened, right? Well, if you don't go through that heating process and the quenching process, if you try and use it for all those hard things, what's going to happen? It's not going to work, right? If you don't do it right. It's going to break or it's going to bend or whatever. But through that process, you have a tool that's better prepared for the master's use, right? The purification of your faith. So that's what these trials are referring to, that you can rejoice in these eternal truths even while you're going through these trials of your faith, that your faith Will become more precious and will be found under the praise and honor at Jesus' appearing. All right? Okay. And then in verses 8 through 12, he gives you another reminder. He's reminded you these eternal truths. He's giving you another reminder of how you're blessed, of that you have the full picture. Okay? Old Testament saints, they only had glimpses of Christ. Right? There's little things that pointed to him, of he's coming. But we don't know exactly what it's going to be like or how it's going to be. Um, you know, Job was able to say that I, I know that I'll, that my Redeemer liveth and I'll see him with my eyes, but it's just these little itty-bitty glimpses, hints foreshadowing him. He says these are, these are what the old prophets of old, they wanted to see and they couldn't see it clearly. Even these are the ones who are, that the Lord used to inspire Scripture. And so now, you have the privilege of having access to the whole written Word of God, where you can see From beginning to end, what God was doing. Will you understand it fully? Probably not. I don't, right? God's ways and thoughts are higher than mine, but this is still given access to him. This is the one reliable resource we have in this world, okay? Everything else is going to be tainted because it's inspired by men, okay? So he's reminding them of that truth, of that privilege that they have to have access to this information that even the angels didn't know God's full plan, Right? As the gospel's being unfolded, it says those are they're, they're interested in looking in and seeing what's going on. And I'm, I'm summarizing a little bit, you know, just for the sake of time, but go back and read this whole book over the course of the week. It's not, not that long. Alright? So you've got a reminder of the eternal truths. You've got a reminder that you can rejoice in those things even when you're going through trials, various trials of your faith. You've got a reminder of the specific and blessed position you're in to have access to this information of God's uh plan is what he's done the truth and then in 13 he gives a charge and there's a lot of charges in this letter a charge you could say that as a as a call or an exhortation or hey because these things are true you should do something all right so verse 13 wherefore That's because gird up the loins of your mind all right that's not an expression we use. But the idea is to make yourself ready. All right. If you had to go run a race and you're in this long flowing robe, right, you would trip all over it and you'd fall on your face. The idea is you'd tie a belt around it and you'd be able to gird it all together so you wouldn't hinder yourself. Well, the idea there is for your mind that prepare your mind for these trials, for these tribulations. Have a mental fortitude. Be ready for action in your mind. Be sober. That's another way of saying to be alert. Be vigilant, not um, drunken or consumed by... I mean, either you could have natural drunkenness, but also just being consumed by the things of this world in general that are distracting you. You know, if you have someone who is on guard duty and they're actively looking and scanning, you say, that person's alert. But if you got that same guy who's sitting there, but he's watching the clouds or he's taking a nap or he's playing on his phone, right? Is that person alert and sober? No. No. All right? So your charge, because these things are true do something, gird up the loins of your mind, be ready, be sober, and hope to the end. You should be encouraged to the end, because this lively hope is still true, all right? That grace that you'll see at the end, there's going to be a great glorification of all God's people at the end. When Christ returns, he's going to give us glorified bodies. It's not new bodies. It says these are going to be changed, twinkle twinkle of an eye, and they will no longer be burdened by sin. They won't fail. They'll become now a perfect form that will go on for forever. That's part of the glory that you're going to get to experience, and that's just the littlest bit, right? We sing that song about the bride on her wedding day. Is not looking at, how pretty is my dress? She's looking at her bridegroom, right? The one that she loves and is marrying. That's the idea But On that day, there's going to be a lot of trappings, like the, the bride's dress, but that's not going to be the important part. The important part is, oh, my word. I get to see my Lord. I'll see the nail prints in his hands and know that it was for me and for you that he went through that. That's going to be that great day. That's going to be that glorious day. That's what we're looking forward to. So we're prepared mentally in the midst of these trials. And how are we governing ourselves? That's kind of the theme there is govern yourself as obedient children. You've been adopted into the family of God. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do the things that glorify Him. And there's a contrast with not fashioning yourself to your former self, right? Before you were called out of darkness into light, when you were still dead in trespasses and sins, when you were still doing the stuff that everyone else in the world wants to do and encourages you to do, and they kind of get mad at you if you don't go along with their game, right? It says, don't fashion yourself like that anymore when you were still ignorant, right? You had not been given given enlightenment. Your eyes had not been opened, Rather, be obedient chil- children. He's called you. He that's called you is holy. All right? So if your father is holy, it says, be ye holy. Conduct yourself in a holy manner. In all manner of conversation. That conversation is not just talking about your yapping. That, that means your whole behavior. Everything about your life should be a desire to glorify God. All right? Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect a person judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. All right, so this letter is written already to believers. This is written to those who should be calling on their Heavenly Father. That's a a form for praying, right? So this is who, it's not written to unbelievers, right? Hey, you, believer, if you're calling on the Heavenly Father and you're asking Him for stuff, pass your time here in fear. Now, this is not dread and just anxiety and distress. This is a reverential loving awe of your heavenly Father, right? How good is he? Perfect. How powerful is he? He's got all power. He's more than I can wrap my head around, right? You look at some of the Old Testament things that God was able to do with minimal effort. Right? Send an angel and wipe out 185,000 men with Sennacherib's army, alright? He was mouthing off, and what was he mouthing off? He said, your God can't save you. And God said, Right? It's in the Psalms it says that you know the kings who are mounted up against the Lord, and he says he holds them in derision, he laughs at them, right? The world cannot overcome your father. So pass this time with fear. So govern yourself with holiness and with fear. And then it says, why? Why do you do those things? Because of Jesus Christ. You know what redeemed you. It wasn't you putting money in the church plate. It wasn't, you know, checking the box for whatever it is, any work you could do. It wasn't silver or gold that redeemed you, but rather it was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Do you have any other reason that you need to live a life that glorifies Jesus Christ? You don't need any other reason. He purchased you with his blood. You belong to him. Am I a servant? You better believe it. Who's my master? Jesus Christ. Right? That's our reminder. Of why do I? What's my motivation? I'm not trying to earn my way to heaven. I can't. There's nothing I can do that's good enough to get there. But can I show my gratitude and love for my master who purchased me, who pulled me out of hell, which is where I rightfully deserve to go, and if he had sent me there, all I could do when I'm there is say, Lord, you're just. You're holy. For one sin, I deserve to be separated from you eternally. The wages of sin are death. And yet Christ took upon that death for us and paid the price for us, shed His blood. This is God coming into the world and shedding His blood for you. Do you need any other motivation? No. Amen. Alright? So because of that, because of Christ and who He is and what He's done, that's your motivation. So live this time with a good conversation as obedient children, with your mind alert. Ready? Continue this. Even in the midst of persecutions, in the midst of trials... And it says, seeing that you've already started to love one another, do it more. That's your next part of your charge, is love each other more. This is within the church. Seeing as you uh, have purified your souls in the obeying of the truth through the Spirit under the unfeigned love of the brethren. You've already done that. See that you love one another with a pure heart. Fervently, take it to the next level. Continue to love. Guess what? It's going to be hard to love a bunch of sinners. <laughs> That's Okay. That's what a church is made up of, a bunch of sinners, right? But they're purchased by God, and they're all trying to serve God. One of the things he says, that the world will know you as my disciples if you love one another. So you've already started loving another. That's good. Continue to grow in that. Love more intensely, fervently. Why? Because you've been born again, not by the Spirit of the world, but by the Holy Spirit of God, the indwelling Spirit, the Word of the Lord which endures forever. That's that's Jesus Christ. He's the one who caused you to be born again. He's the one who gives you that desire to love. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. Right? Those are all come from the inward man that you can't make on your own. He has to give you that and then you live it out. Alright? So that's the word of the Lord which endures forever and this is the word which the gospel was preached unto you. Alright? One chapter. we got to go faster. Alright? So that's charge number one. Charge number two. And there's going to be patterns in this. There's going to be repetition. I think I repeat myself as a preacher. He repeats himself just in one letter. All right? Wherefore, because all that's true, those eternal truths and what he's called you to do, because all that's true, you need to lay aside some things. Those old things, those old behaviors, that old man. And this one, these all focus on your mouth. Malice, guile, hypocrisies, envies, evil speakings. What's going to hinder you loving fervently among your brethren? Malice, guile, hypocrisy, evil speakings. All those things are going to cause strife and division within the family of God. Lay that aside. What do you do instead? As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now this does apply to written word, but it's actually talking about Jesus Christ. That word of the Lord that endures forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Here's your gospel. It's talking about the word. The second person in the Trinity, Jesus Christ, in the beginning was the Word, right? In John 1.1. 1, 1. That's who we're coming to. We're not following the pattern of the world with malice and envy and guile. Why do you do all those things? Because you care more about yourself than other folks. But if all of us care more about Jesus than anybody else, we're going to care about each other more, um, and we'll have it all in perspective. So if we're all chasing headlong after Jesus, we will grow. We'll grow together, desiring... As a baby loves her mother's milk, right? Desire the sincere milk of the word. Desire Christ that you may grow. If so be you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. Again, this is written to those who've already tasted that the Lord is gracious. It's not giving you that taste. You can't make somebody be born again. That's God alone. So you've already got that desire for Jesus. Have more. And you're coming unto him. And you've got this imagery there of as a lively stone where we are both um, part individually as the stones coming to him and also as collectively as a church, as a spiritual house where we come together and we offer up spiritual sacrifices to our Lord Jesus. Um, and it goes back, and I won't get into it this time, but it gives a, a, the Old Testament illustration of that chief cornerstone. The cornerstone, the one that everything else in the structure is built off of. What defines what's straight and right and true in your structure? That's your cornerstone. That makes is this wall right? Is this wall vertical? Is this one right? That's Christ. He defines what's straight. Everything else builds off Him. All right. If I'm crooked or out of line, you don't build off me, you build off Him. All right. And so as we are in this church, we are a, that chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, that we should do what? How are we going to offer up sacrifices? That we should show forth the praises of Him that called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Which in time past, You weren't a people, you know? When you are dead in trespasses and sins, we're just like any other member of the world. We're we're walking like them. We're acting like them. We're talking. them. We're chasing things. I mean, at one point in my life, I was chasing the world, right? I had gone to law school. I was ready to make the big money and just had to pay off those student loans. And, whoa, it was going to get a lot easier, right? The Lord threw a little curveball at me. He did allow me to pay off the student loans, which is nice. But that's what I was chasing, (coughs) all right? He's called me out of that, called you out of that, out of darkness and into his marvelous light. All right? And so what are we doing? We're showing his praises. We're demonstrating our love and our adoration to him. All right? Because of that, he's going to beg you to do something. This charge continues, right? I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against your soul. We heard that before, right? Verse 14 of chapter 1. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to your former lusts and your ignorance. He's repeating himself, right? Lay that it down. And instead, what should you have? Having an honest conversation. Right? Holy conversation, honest conversation. These are synonymous. Alright. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. So there this is talking about the unbelievers around you. That your conversation should be honest, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, these are the ones who are persecuting you, right? They're speaking against you, they're slandering you, they hate you, they may be throwing you in jail, they may be leading you to be, your death. Even then, continue with your honest conversation, continue in your good works, that they, on the day of visitation, that's a reference for when Christ returns, that on then, on that day, they'll have to glorify God and say, your servant over here, even though I was so awful to him, they were still faithfully doing what you told them to do. And he's got to glorify God. Okay, That's what that's talking about. So, then it goes on with a description of how do you have that honest conversation? How, does it, how do you have um, a life filled with good works? What does that look like? Verse 13, submit yourself to every ordinance. All right? This is not uh, popular <laughs> in our day and age, but it says it. The laws of men, for God's sake, we submit to them. Okay, Everything that's not completely contrary to this, where it's requiring us to do something that's prohibited, or prohibiting us from doing something that's required so if they said you cannot meet together as a body and worship anymore that's not one we'd submit to if they say don't speed that's what we have to submit to right the general rule is that we have to submit to the ordinance of men because they're so great no because the laws are just and right and fair no because this is what our heavenly father told us to do it glorifies him Okay, so we're submitting for the Lord's sake. That's what it says: submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors. Who do you think is authorizing the persecution of all these people? Probably kings and governors. Right? That's what happened in Christ. You had Pilate, these local Pilate and Herod, these local kings and governors. They're the ones who are saying, "Yes, it's okay to torture these people. Yes, let's kill them." Still, okay, you know. Can they take away the freedom of religion in this country? Yes. Will that stop us? No. no. Right? Will it get different? Yes. Sure. All right. But our, our service to the Lord is not contingent upon having a convenient environment. It's very nice to meet in here and have air conditioning, and comfy seats, right? No gnats. Right. We did that where we met outside for a time early in COVID and was eating gnats while preaching. I, I didn't particularly enjoy that. But it's not required. None of this is required. Two or three of us are gathering together, and we're worshiping the Lord. That's all that's required. All right. He's going to be there. He's the important party. All right. So, having our conversation honest, submitting ourselves to every ordinance of men, submitting ourselves to um, the kings. Says this is the will of God that with well doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. All right. Verse seventeen. Honor all. Even the ones who are persecuting you, even the ones that are hating you. This is consistent with Jesus' uh, don't just be kind to those that are your friends, love your enemies too. Do good to those that persecute you and despitefully use you. Is this contrary to your old man and carnal and sin nature? You better believe it. Right? You get that slap on the face. Your old man says, a oh, hide, I'm gonna rear back and show you my right hook, right? But that's not where we're called to. Alright? Do good to those. Continue to do good even in the face of opposition. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. That's the second time in this letter he's going to remind us to love within the church, brothers and sisters. Fear God. Second time he's reminding us to fear God. Honor the king. That's the second time he's told us to honor the king. Right? Um, And then it goes on to give other examples of how we go about living uh, with a good conscience and um, doing What pleases the Lord, whether you're a slave and you're subject to your master's will? Serve him faithfully, for the Lord's sake. Not because he's worthy of it, but because the Lord has told you to. Um, Even if you suffer for doing what's right, it's more thankworthy if you endure grief and you take it patiently if you're suffering for doing right when you're doing it for the conscience sake towards God. That's a long sentence. For conscience sake towards God, do what's right, even if there's negative consequences. Okay? And then it gives you a reason why, and what's the reason I always go back to? Christ. What's his pattern? Did he deserve any of what he received at the hands of those wicked sinners? No! Had he sinned at all? Had he tried. Anything that broke any of the... Nothing, right? He had lived a perfect life. He had injured nobody. And yet, what did he receive? Hatred. Torture. Death. Right? Is that thankworthy, his service to his heavenly father? Yeah. Is that the pattern that we would follow? But we should, right? When he was threatened, he didn't come back with it. You have no idea the angels that I have at my command. You better not do that anymore. Right? He could have. Right? His apostles wanted to go in and start hacking off ears in the garden. And you know, he, he could bring down 10,000 legions of angels if he'd asked. But he was being obedient to the Father's will that as the just person he was going to suffer for the unjust. Right? Is it too much for us to know and with good conscience that we have done nothing wrong and worthy of pain to endure it patiently? For his sake. It's not too much for us to ask. Is it pleasant to think about? No. Is it really foreign for us in this country? I mean, we're, we're exceptionally blessed. We've really never been put to this situation. But if God were to put it to us, He would be right to do so. All right? This is we're the exception to the rule. You look back at the church history over the last two thousand years, persecution, hatred, martyrdom, that was the norm. And the ones who got in the most trouble were the ones who just wanted to stand by God's word and not add other trappings of men or politics or big overarching church structures. You start disagreeing with those powers, you're more likely to find yourself burning alive. I shared that clip with you from uh, that history book I was looking at about the 250-year period in uh, England, 14-something to like 1667, where it was legal by English law to burn you if you were a heretic, if you disagreed with the stated church position on anything. right? We, under that law, we would all be worthy of death. Right. We don't believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation. Big word. Those who believe that when you take communion that the wafer and the blood actually literally turn into Jesus' blood and body. We don't believe Scripture teaches that. We believe that it's a symbol and we're to do it in remembrance of what he's done. <laughs> but for me to stand that back at that time and say, this is just a symbol, it's not a literal piece of Jesus' body and blood, I would be worthy of being put to death. And you would too, for listening. Or if you had a copy of Scripture in your native tongue. This This is England, this is not some far off land. This is, if you had the Bible in English, that was a crime punishable by death. We have an exceptionally blessed life. It doesn't have to continue. Lord never promised us. Are we, we going to you know, have this whole life of the bed of roses? We may. We've had a very blessed period. But it doesn't have to. The Lord's not obligated to. And if things got hard, these are still the exhortations and charges the Apostle Peter, the Lord through him, is giving of continue to stand fast, continue to do what's right, continue to be a faithful servant to me, by faithfully serving within your country, by faithfully serving your masters, it goes on. in Chapter three of wives, faithfully serving your husbands, husbands dwelling with them uh, according to knowledge. That means not just abandoning your wife, right? Continue to live with them. That's something as as Christians we should care very much about staying with our wives, right? And dwelling with with honor, giving them honor, right? This is not something that's it's not not a trophy. It's not a prize. This is a helpmeet created by God. Give it value. Treat her well, right? This is. Truly, how a loving husband of God will interact with his wife—not some kind of uh, caricature out there, not some dictator um, ruling and giving dominion over his wife where he puts her under the thumb, right? No, he's loving her as Christ loved His own church, which was a self-sacrificial love where He gave His own body to present His His wife, the church, um, holy and blameless. So it goes on down in verse eight of chapter three. Given all these examples of how do you live out these good works? What is this good conversation? And all these different scenarios. And it's continuing to walk by the Spirit, basically. Doing what pleases the Lord, glorifying Him. Verse 8 says, finally, be you all of one mind. It's going back to within the church, right? Be all of one mind. Having compassion one another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Right? What's the exact opposite of all those things? malice guile hypocrisies envies evil speakings right what are we all tempted to do when we're having a bad day and haven't eaten recently enough or somebody's crying in the car ride you're my temper, right you're tempted to go to those things that old man right but it's the admonition the reminder here is even in the hard times because if y'all have ever you ever had you know broken down the side of the road you're changing a tire and somebody's standing behind you giving advice right more likely to be a little snappy right in times of, of pressure and stress and tribulation, that's when we need to be reminded over and over again of this is how we treat one another. Pitifully, compassionately, courteously. Does it matter how we speak? Yeah. Is it going to get you to heaven? No. That's Christ's work. It's work completely. But how can I glorify Him and how can I live a life that pleases Him and how can I be of most service to Him by doing what He's told me? Right? Let me glorify him. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. Railings when somebody is just laying into you. All right. And the, the modern vernacular I think is when you give it back is to clap back. Right. Well, don't do that. All right? That's not what we're called to. Having that perfect retort is not glorifying to God. But eyes, what do you do instead? Blessing. Blessing those that persecute you rather than those rather than you know, you know railing or, or cursing them. Knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Alright, All right, still with me? We're into verse uh, chapter three down to verse ten. He's going to give in a reminder of there are ways you can avoid certain hardships in life. Alright? Did you know that some hardships are self inflicted? Yeah. Go read the book of Proverbs. If you can apply those, you can avoid a lot of self inflicted hardships. Some come from the Lord, some come from our sins, some come from outside sources, some just come from our own stupidity because we are not applying the the truths of these words, these general principles. It's not a guarantee, it's not a one-for-one relationship, but if you can apply these, you can avoid a lot of um, silly, self-inflicted traps. So that's what he's saying here in verse 10. He that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. All right? Is it wise to walk into a biker bar and start railing on somebody's mother? <laughs> I would say no. All right? No good is going to come from that. Right. That is not seeking peace. That is looking for opportunities to cause trouble and get your nose rearranged. All right? But that's often what we do. We may not, It may not be that glaring of a perspective, but when we start mouthing off and we start um, not refraining our lips from speaking evil and guile, guile's deceit, all right? Whether we're speaking just straight-out badness or we're deceiving somebody, if we're doing those things, we're causing trouble, whether it happens immediately or down the road. It's the same way that you're going to get your nose rearranged by that biker, it's going to cause trouble, all right? rather let him eschew evil eschew that's a great word it means to run away from it flee from evil all right don't dilly-dally with the side of it see how close i can get without getting into trouble flee from it all appearance from it rather do good let him seek peace and ensue it all right that's what we should be doing within the church seeking peace among the brethren all right and among the sisters For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. If you're doing those things, don't expect the Lord to bail you out every time. Okay? Well, Lord, I'm praying that he won't rearrange my face. I told you not to go in there and say something. Who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? That's the general rule, is that you are going to avoid a lot of trouble if you are going out of your way seeking good. You won't be making a lot of dumb enemies. Now, it says, you may still have enemies. You may be doing the best you can and and trying to please the Lord. And for righteousness' sake, you may still suffer because you are being righteous. He says, in that scenario, that's a very different scenario. He says, in that scenario, you can be happy. This is a different word than feel happy. This word, be happy, is that you are happy. You are blessed. Carnal self says, what? I'm having trouble because I'm doing right. My dad would express it as, "No good deed goes unpunished," right? You suffer for righteousness' sake; happier ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither of their trouble. How can I? How, how can I reconcile that? Why, why, Lord? How am I blessed if I'm doing the right thing and I'm still having hardship? Jump over to chapter four and verse um, thirteen and fourteen because it's the same concept there of when you've got these fiery trials. Rejoice inasmuch that ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth on you. On their part He is evil spoken of, but on your part He's glorified. You would not be willing to go through this but for the fact that the Lord has done a miracle within your life, He has given you new life. He's given you the indwelling Holy Spirit, right? And so, by doing this acts of righteousness and suffering patiently for it, it's just another reminder to you of the Lord loves you, <laughs> right? And they can't take away that lively inheritance. And Jesus said, "Don't be afraid of men. The worst thing they can do is kill you." All right? and Paul would say, "To live is Christ. I get the opportunity to serve Christ. But to die, that's gain." Right. Do we have to fear death? No! no. Am I saying to, to get drunk and go driving on the wrong side of the road? No. no. That would be that foolish stuff that we were talking about. Do the best you can. Serve the Lord the best you know. Grow in grace. Desire the word. Be close to him. But when hard things happen, because you're doing the right thing, be encouraged. Because that's just another sign the Lord is working in you. Okay? And you can rejoice. Yeah, folks may speak evil of you for it. But you're glorifying him. He's being glorified by your faithfulness. So sanctify, this is verse 15 in chapter 3. Sorry, jump back. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Sanctify means to set him as holy, to recognize God's holy. He is holy, he is holy, he is holy. And I'm going to be ready to give an answer to those who are persecuting me. I'm doing right. I'm getting persecuted anyway. I'm going to be ready to give an answer um, to every man that asks. What is the reason I have for hope? What's, what is the reason I have? Jesus Christ! He is the reason for my lively hope. He's the reason I'm continuing to faithfully serve in the midst of what's going on. And I'm going to answer with meekness and godly fear, not with braggadociousness or arrogancy or pomp. All right? Having good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, evil they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you of your good conversation in, in Christ. To be ashamed means don't prove them right. Let them say all manner of lies about you, but let them be false. Right? Don't give them ammo to say, well, he's a follower of you, but he is he's, he's not doing what the Lord says. He's just, a, he's just a bold-faced hypocrite. Now, at various points in our life, we all fall in that category. Right? And that's why we need to be convicted of that and confess it to the Lord and, and, and lay whatever it is that we're not doing consistently down. Um, and we've got to lay those down every day. We're always going to have that old nature that we've got to battle against. But you must battle. You cannot just give in and be, well, this is the way I am, so I'm just going to continue to act like the rest of the world. Verse 17. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Why? Why is that better? Again, that's the pattern that Christ did. It's the same same argument that he makes before. He's just explaining it one more time. Christ suffered the just for the unjust. He had done nothing wrong. He'd suffered for well-doing. All right? He suffered and he is now resurrected and gone into heaven everyone else is a, is subject to him all right so because of that you need to be willing to suffer as well all right this is not something you'll see on the tv preachers right the the here's the number send in your money life's going to be perfect no for as much then as christ hath suffered for us in the flesh arm yourselves with arm yourself likewise with the same mind for he that suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, all right. This idea of arming yourself in the mind that's like putting on armor for your mind. Be, be ready in advance to know that I could suffer for faithfully serving Christ, right? And that's okay, right? That's the That's what happened to my master. I'm not better than him. I shouldn't expect better treatment in this world than he received. Now, are we going to get the full extent of what he received? Not a bit, all right, because the wrath of the Father was poured out in him. The most that we will ever receive is the judgment of men. At minimum, you can be mocked. At maximum, they could kill you. That's all the range they've got. Jesus had to go so much further in that he literally bore the wrath that was due for your sins and for your sins and for my sins. He bore that from the Father. So that he's crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Instead of all the other times when he's addressing the Father, and it's just as that, as his Father. There was this this separation that had to occur because of those sins. But when he declared, it is finished, you know what I believe? It was finished! finished That he completed the work of salvation, that he has put away those sins, and that they are away, and now I am no longer a slave to sin, and neither are you. And so that we are enabled to be willing to suffer in this world for righteousness' sake. It says, For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his life in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. All right? You've got, again, this idea, this, this dichotomy of the old and the new. The old man, the old lust of the flesh, and the new man. The disobedient child and the obedient child. Those that were not a people who are now a people. Those who had not obtained mercy, those who have now obtained mercy those which used to pursue the lust of the flesh living a life of just sin and now striving by God's grace and mercy to live a life of righteousness you're no longer bound to that sin it says you have ceased from sin it doesn't mean that there's zero sin right? you, you can't get there right? you will always have that old sin nature here that's one of the beauties of being glorified is that when you're free from sin remember that song we see about being freed from sinning right no longer living in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. That's what we're now putting forth. That holy conversation, that honest conversation, seeking the good work, seeking the righteousness, it is seeking the will of God. How is his will defined? Here. All right? And you can understand it by the Holy Ghost within you. All right? You can read this, but if he has not done that work in your heart, this will mean nothing. All right? You can read a lot of academia, academians who have done a lot of scholarly work about the Bible, but you can tell they don't actually believe it's real. And they can't understand it, because the Lord hadn't given them eyes to, at least not at the time that they wrote those things. All right? For in our time past, it was sufficient for us to serve those lusts of flesh, the will of the Gentiles is described. And we talked a couple weeks ago about all those in detail, walking in lasciviousness. Those are impure lusts and desires, often sexual uh, excesses in wine, over abusing uh, any form of substance, right? Revelings, partyings, banquetings excess in food, and uh, abominable idolatries—all the things that your body says, "Oh yeah, that'd be pretty nice." And just gorging on it, right? That's the old way. And then you had friends who you were doing that with. It says now they think it's strange that you run not to them with the same excess of riot. Says you're not partying the same way that you were. What's wrong with you? All right? This is kind of that minimal scale. They're they're mocking you. You're you're a fuddy duddy, you're a Bible thumper, you're a square, whatever. Insert modern vernacular here. But they're making fun of you, speaking evil of you, because you used to do this. What, now you think you're better than us? Right? You judgmental hypocrite, right? I know what you did before, right? It says, who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge that the quick judge the quick and the dead? That's referring to them who are speaking evil of you. They're gonna to have to give an account to the Lord, right? They may mock you and curse you and hate you now. But we're all going to stand before God one day. Okay? And so when we're making our decisions, do we continue what we were doing before or do we now try to serve God's will? It's really no decision at all or it shouldn't be. Right? I've got to stand before God. If in knowing the truth of what Christ has done, I continue to willfully sin and add sin upon sin upon sin that was put upon my Lord, that's shameful. Okay? Okay? It says, For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. This is talking about those who had already been killed by men. They're presently dead in this world. They had been preached to. Men judged them according to the flesh. But what do they do now? They're living. Their spirits are with God, and they live according to the Spirit. Okay? That could be you or I. And that, that idea comes in... Um, over in the in chapter uh, four and verse seventeen, um, the time will come that if judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin with us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel? That's the idea: is that there is there is a judgment that we're going through, and it's in the court of men, and they won't give righteous judgment, right? We're we're crooked and perverse, but they'll be judging us and seeing are you serving the God, and they they may they may hate you for it, they may kill us, okay. But that's not who we're ultimately going to stand before. right? When we stand before the throne, Christ is going to say, that one's mine. I paid for that one. There is no one who can de- condemn him. He is free. Right? And there's nothing a man could say to counter that. All right? Verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand, living like the end is here. Right? Do you know when Christ is coming? No. Should you wait till you think he's about to come before you start trying to apply this? No. Right? We use the illustration about you know, telling the boys to clean up their room and it better be clean before mama gets home from the store. Right. And the motivation changes a little bit when they hear the tires on the gravel. Right? Mama's almost home. i got to work a little bit harder. Right. That's the same idea is that we are going to live today like Christ could come back today. And guess what? He could. If anybody tells you exactly what it is, they're lying. Scripture says they don't know. Okay? Be ye therefore sober. I think that's the third time he said that. Alert, vigilant. Watch unto prayer. So you're communing with the Father, you're being engaged, you're vigilant. And above all things, have fervent charity. That's the third or fourth time. Among yourselves for charity shall cover the multitude of sin. Use hospitality one to another without gr- grudging. And then goes on to describe that the gifts that God's given you for the edification of the church, use them. <coughs> As he's given them, use them. Use them for his glory. And then down in verse 12, it, it reminds of, if you're going through hardships, he says, don't think that this is some freak accident, some mistake that uh, just shouldn't be. He says, don't think it's something strange if you're enduring trials for righteousness' sake. Um, but Rejoice because you have made a, you've been made a partaker of Christ's suffering. Again, not the full magnitude of it, but you get just a little bit of the taste, so that when He comes, you'll have a greater appreciation for the scope of what He's done. You can rejoice. You may be glad with exceeding joy when He comes. All right, and if you, be rejoiced, if you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth on you. On their part, God is evil spoken of, but on your part, He's glorified by your faithful living it out. Verse fifteen says, "But suffering just because you've been doing evil, there's no glory in that. There's no honor in that. Don't, none of you should suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a busybody in other man's affairs. It says there's no glory in that. Don't, don't, don't think that just suffering for suffering's sake is good. But if you suffer for as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, let not him be ashamed. There's nothing to be ashamed in that, right?" If they came in here and arrested me for preaching the gospel today, y'all wouldn't have to say, oh, that's so embarrassing. Our preacher's arrested, right? That's okay. That's, that's a risk. There's no shame in that. If I was driving drunk and I was arrested, yeah, y'all better be ashamed. Oh my goodness, what? how is he leading us, right? It's a very different scenario. So suffering a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. All right? We talked about the judgment beginning with us, but it's going to end... Um, before the great white throne. Verse 19, Wherefore, let him that suffer, all of us, whenever we're suffering according to the will of God. Right. So that's when we're suffering for righteousness' sake. Commit the keeping of their souls. And that word soul means your breath, your life, um, as opposed to your mortal soul. Let your life be committed to him in well-doing as unto the faithful creator. Trust the Lord. Right. Remember why we can rejoice with all this Trust the Lord. He is a faithful creator. He's a faithful father. He sent his son to die for you. Is he worthy of your trust? Yes. All right. We're off to chapter 5. We're going to get there eventually. All right. And then he gives a charge to the elders. And it basically sums up to this. Elders, do your job for the right reasons, with the right motive, not to get money out of his people, not to have power, not to have outsized influence but rather as a servant give an example for applying these things and feed the sheep from the word because man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth father the mouth of the father all right do your job right which brings us down to verse five likewise ye younger submit yourselves unto the elder so as we got this pattern of before what's the holy and honest conversation you're submitting to the works of men The ordinance is men. You're submitting to the civil government. You're submitting to the masters or employers. Those are over you. Wives to husbands. Husbands dwelling with knowledge among each other. Even here, that the members of the church submit yourselves to the elders, to the leaders of the church. Why? Because they're teaching you the word. And they've been put in that role as an overseer to watch after you as an under-shepherd. They should be pointing you to Christ. And for his sake, you should be listening. Well, he, he stepped on my toes. He offended me. He hurt my feelings. Okay. Was it backed up by the word of God? If yes... Do it anyway. <laughs> if not, you might need to have a conversation with, them. <laughs> all right? Yea, all of you be subject one to another. All right, this is that mutual, uh, mutual humility, caring for one another, um, and be clothed with humility. All right, this word uh, "clothe" is interesting. It means to engirdle oneself about to labor. All right, when Grandma went to go bake. Before Thanksgiving, what does she always put on an apron. an apron, right? An apron is like a badge of servitude. When you go to a most fancy restaurants, somebody comes out. What do they have wrapped around? Them? An apron, all right? This is your symbol for our humility with each other. That each of us, when we come in here, we're tying on an apron, all right? We're not the ones sitting down at the table. Y'all serve me, right? And even as as the leader. Those that would be chief among you, let him be your servant, right? So I should be patterning how to be a servant to you by serving you. How do you serve the Lord? You serve his people, right? Tying on that apron to engirdle yourself for labor, all right? So imagine that. Imagine tying on that apron. Whenever you are um, thinking about, well, I don't have their problems, right? I don't struggle with that in any way. They've been... Whatever. You know you get high-minded and you kind of get lifted up in your own pride. Tie on that apron. My job here is to serve. I serve the Lord. When I serve the least of his children, I'm serving him directly. Humble yourself. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Now, Sister Marty told me that I could preach on pride going before the fall. <laughs> she did. She did. And that's in Proverbs 16:18. Uh, it says, Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The on that is she didn't want to use a crank cane, and she said she was proud. (laughs) I said, you just teed up that sermon. She says, you can preach on it, but that's not the point. But it even came in here, right? He resisted the proud, right? When you're lifted up in yourself and arrogant and thinking that you are better, one, than others, and two, more than God, because you know what's better, he is not going to help you along that path. For your good, he'll resist you. Means to stand opposed to you. But when you humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, He gives you the grace that you need to continue on to serve Him. Alright? So humbling ourselves. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, in the right time, whether that's in your lifetime or when He finally glorifies you. So we should not be high and mighty and lifted up. If we've got a bunch of, uh, you know, I saw a video about some construction workers about when the white shirts come and teach us how to do our job, right? He's showing over here how to lay brick and mortar. He's just doing a terrible job of it. We should not be the white shirts at the construction site, right? We should all be laborers together, right? The Lord is is our leader. He is the head of this church, and he's the one that we are trying to emulate because when he came, he served, right? That's why we wash feet at communion, right? It's because he said, this is the pattern. Happier you if you do it, right? I came not to be served, but to serve. So serve one another. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. All right? Casting all your cares. This word casting only appears one other time in Scripture. Remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem on the donkey, the apostles cast their clothes onto that donkey. And then Jesus sat on them. You think they could have taken them back very easily? No. So when you think about casting your cares on the Lord, just imagine Jesus sits on them. (laughs) You can't take them back. Um, Can you you move so I can? No, right? Casting your care. Well, what's care? Care is not just, um, well, care is having an anxious thought, concern, um, kind of an undue regard or fear. Strong's gives a a great word, it's called solicitude. I've never used that in my life, I had to look up what that meant. here's, Here's your definition of solicitude. Carefulness, concern, uneasiness of mind, occasioned by fear or desiring good. Okay, carefulness, concern, uneasiness of mind, occasioned by fear or desire of good. You have got People who are in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trials, who he's encouraged. He's saying, toss your fear, your anxiety, your uneasiness of mind. Toss it on the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. Remember all these eternal truths that I've told you and said, look at the pattern of Christ over and over and over and over again in this letter. He cares for you. Put your care there. Now, back in Jesus' ministry, there would be those who would come and ask to have their... um, Inheritance divided. And he says, no one made me a judge over your stuff, right? And and gave a lecture on being aware of covetous. And at the end of it, he's talking about being content with food and raiment. But he he asks a question. He says, which of you, by taking thought, can add a cubit under your stature? A cubit is the distance from your elbow to your wrist, okay? About 18 inches. Which of you, just by worrying about it, kids, y'all have done this, who, by worrying, can make yourself 18 inches taller? I really wanted to be six feet tall when I was younger. <laughs> I thought, man, I'll get there. No. <laughs> and if I spend all my time for the rest of my life worrying about it, can I add 18 inches? Can I add one inch? No. And so Jesus' response to that is, says, if you then can't do that which is least, in God's eyes, stretching you out another 18 inches is the least. Why do you take thought for the rest? What am I going to eat? Where am I going to put on how am I going to have all these problems solved, all the stuff here, if you have no power anyway, but you have one who knows what you need and cares for you, who is it better to put that upon? Worrying when you have no ability or trusting the one who cares for you. That's what it means here of casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. Be sober. It's like, what? Fourth, fifth time, be sober. What do you need to do? Be vigilant. Why? Because you have an adversary. You have an enemy. You have one who stands opposed to you. That adversary is a legal term. It's the one who is on the contrary side of justice. All right? If you go to court, there's you and there's the other guy. All right? And that word adversary means a false accuser. Now the devil means false accuser, a traducer. A false accuser. One who is going to slander you. Is it any wonder that the world slanders you for doing righteously? The devil's doing the same thing. He is walking about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, a roaring lion. If you're not paying attention and you're walking around sleepwalking or you're distracted or you're drunk, are you much more likely to walk up upon a roaring lion versus being awake, being alert, being sober? What does a roaring lion give you? A clue of his existence, right? Right? It's not describing as he's, he's lying there in secret, in trap, right? And hidden. But he's a roaring lion so you should be paying attention because you can avoid falling into his pitfalls. What do the pitfalls look like? Falling into those lusts of the flesh. Those traps. Those are self-induced. He'll often give you the nudge. Right? He's walking about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist. Stand opposed to him. How? Steadfast in the faith in the truth of the faith in the truth of what Jesus Christ has done knowing that this lion is really a defeated lion right? he's already had his teeth plucked right? he is going to um, at the very end be completely cast down but he's got a little bit of time here he cannot overcome the work of Christ right? your salvation is secure those truths that we were resting in the beginning of this letter they're still true now but can Satan help you to have a miserable time here yes, yes. and often you'll help him By not being vigilant. By not being attentive. By not engaging in the truth of God's word. And not drawing close to him. Is there a mightier lion than him? You better believe it. We've been talking in our Bible study about Genesis. And we're talking about Judah. And there was a prophecy about him. And right now he's just a lion's whelp, A cub. But one day he's going to grow up. And he's going to be a mighty lion that nobody is going to mess with. And that's the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's referred to in Revelation. That's Jesus Christ. Right? He is the mighty lion that no one... Can overcome him, all right? So, that's who's really protecting you. Cast all your cares upon him, because he cares for you, right? Y'all ever seen those videos of a little fella yammering to a big guy, and suddenly the big guy just takes off, right? Because there's somebody bigger standing behind of him, right? Or it could be a little bear cub, if you want that imagery, right? Mama bear standing behind, and they take off, right? You can you can stand fast. You can resist Satan. Because Christ is there. He's the one who's really scaring them off, but you're standing fast in the truth of the faith, that who Jesus Christ is and what he has done and what he would have me to do. I can continue to faithfully serve him because of what he's done. And I know that you can't defeat that. And I don't have to follow you. I'm not a slave to sin anymore. While knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world... Are you having trials because of your faith? Yes. Are other peoples having the trials as well? Yes, this was throughout Rome and throughout the world. If you're standing fast in God's word, there will be afflictions, and you're not unique. Okay? Sometimes, I'm so special. This, no, this has never happened to anybody. No. Right? They're happening to other people, and they're resisting it by continuing to faithfully serve God in spite of the adversaries. But the God of all grace... Who hath called us into his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, that's not sinless, but mature or complete, establish, strengthen, settle you. Right? That's like the quenching of that knife. Right? You go through that heating treatment, it bangs into shape, and then he establishes you by quenching you, and you become hard and ready for his use. Right? So there are trials that will mold you and shape you as a follower of Christ. And they'll hurt, and you may look very different on the other side of it. But the rest of your life, you'll be ready for the Lord's service. Can you still have chips and rolls and vents and things as you go through the hard times in the future? Yes, right? But He has prepared you for His service. And ultimately, on that great day, when you're fully perfect, fully established, fully strengthened, fully settled, that's at the glorification where sin is gone and you get to enjoy him forever. To, glory, to him, the one who's doing that, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, which is also Silas, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly. Short letter, right? Took an hour and six minutes, right? I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting. Has he exhorted you? Yes. Over and over and over again, exhorting you and testifying. That this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. He said, I've told you the truth. This is the gospel. This is the faith. This is what Jesus Christ has done and who he is. This is what you're standing in. All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus Christ is true the church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, right? We started with election, we end with election, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. That's John Mark, the one that, who abandoned Paul early. He's now, you know, become more faithful. Later, Paul would say, hey, send me him. He's faithful to the ministry. So just because you start off rocky and don't do it perfectly doesn't mean the Lord can't use you later. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Again, that's the expression of that fervent love. Um, peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. First letter from Peter.